Well, hey, welcome to First Church. So glad you chose to join us for worship today. And I know we have a ton of people right now worshiping online because this has been another crazy weather weekend as well as a lot of sickness going around. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm so glad for our online option. And so if you are here on site, would you put your hands together and welcome in our online family? Let them know we're glad they're worshiping. And even though we have a lot of people out today, we have a good crowd here, and so I'm glad that you're here, whether it's on-site or online. I heard before I walked out on stage that we have Emily and Foster, who are here in Owasso watching. Uh, we also have Jen, that's in Eden, Oklahoma, watching. And I know we also have Rob and his family in Owasso watching, as well as a ton of others. So welcome. We're so glad you're here. And we are in week two of our series, which we launched last week, called Coming Up for air. And I told you last week that when I hear that phrase coming up for air, I think about when I was a kid and I would go swimming with friends and we would try to hold our breath to see who could hold it the longest underwater. And so I was talking about that with some of our staff this week and I challenged some of them to see how long they could hold their breath and three of them decided to get into a competition and see who could do it the best. And so they went down to our local YMCA and I want you to see what happened. But before I do, before I show you what happened, here are the three staff members that competed, okay? Now, you may recognize some of these guys. If you're here on site, you may have seen them around the building. And so this right here is Brian Champ. He is our group slash online minister. This is uh, Jake Fallis. He's our care minister. And then we've got Chris Moore, who's our junior high minister. And so what I want to do is I want to take a quick poll, and I want to see who you guys think is going to hold their breath the longest, who's going to win this competition. So when I say their name, shout out out loud, get loud so I can hear you and the people at home can hear you. And if you are watching online, go ahead and type in the online chat who you think is going to win. Let's take a quick poll. So how many of you guys think that Brian Champ is going to win? Okay, not very many. All right. Brian does not have a lot of fans in this service. Okay, he had more in the earlier service. How about Jake Fallis? Wow, Jake is so well loved around this place. He really is. Okay, how about Chris Morton? Okay, all right. So, a lot of people for Chris as well. Well, let's see what happens. Here we go. Man, I don't really want to do this. Hey, everyone. Chad asked uh, Chris and Jake and I to come down to the Owasso YMCA and have a little friendly contest and see who can uh, hold their breath the longest. We're going to go ahead and give it a shot, see what happens. Three, two, one. <laughs> Okay, so how many guys had Brian? All right, yeah, not as many, but hey, he pulled it out. He sure did. I think it's the beard. It weighed him down. I really do. I think that had something to do with it. But some of us can hold our breath longer than others, but no matter how long you can do it, eventually we all need to come up for air. And that's why I think this series that we're in right now is so important, because many of us, we feel exhausted right now. 
Because for some time, our culture has been pushing down on us. We feel like we've been underwater, and we want some type of relief. I mean, when it comes to our emotions and our feelings, we just feel like that the waves of this culture keep sweeping over top of us. And so when it comes to our physical health or our spiritual health or even the relationships that we have, sometimes we just feel like we are underwater and we need some relief. We need some help. And here's the thing. Jesus doesn't want our culture getting the best of us. He doesn't want the currents of this culture to sweep over us in such a way that we feel like that we're constantly sinking in a sea of chaos and uncertainty and fear. No, he came to give us a better way of life. And that's what this series is all about. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, he says, Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Jesus, come to me and you can take a deep breath. Come to me and I will show you a better way to live. Because this life, the life-draining rhythms of our culture, it's not sustainable over time. The life-draining rhythms that everybody else lives by, you won't be able to thrive in life. I came to show you a different path, a different way to live. Jesus shows us how to live how to live in the refreshing rhythms of God's grace. But we don't have to live for the unhealthy expectations of the world around us, where we can live for an audience of one and find our identity in him. Now, it doesn't mean that doing life his way, Jesus' way way is always going to be easy, but it does mean that we can live life in such a way where we can breathe easier and thrive in such a way that we're able to live out our God-given purpose and find fulfillment and rest in life. See, I illustrated it last week like this, using the image of a whale. If you'll remember, I talked about how whales are these huge, giant, majestic creatures, but they spend the majority of their time underwater. But they're mammals like us. They need air, oxygen to survive. And so ever so often, they have to come to the surface in order to get fresh air. And as they do that, that allows them to live under the water so that they don't just survive, but they thrive. And I believe that's an illustration of our lives as well. See, we live down here. We live under the water for a period of time. And life down here, it is challenging at best. But Jesus shows us how we can regularly come up for air and breathe the air of heaven so that we won't just survive down here, but so that we can thrive. So in this series, we're looking at different moments in the life and ministry of Jesus when basically he taught people some countercultural principles so they can learn how to breathe the air of heaven. And last week, we looked at an example of this when Jesus had this encounter with Mary and Martha. And today, we're going to look at another example of a moment that Jesus has with this young man. And before we get to that passage, one thing that I want to point out is that even though we have experienced a whole lot of negative stuff in our culture since March of 2020, one thing that we've experienced, I think is a positive thing, and that is 
We've started to examine our hearts in a way like we never have before. We've started to look at our hearts differently because of everything that we have gone through. And what I've discovered, and I think most people in our culture have found out as well, is this. Our hearts are aching for something more. For something more than just what this world offers us. We're aching for something more than the wealth of this world, the status of this world, the prestige of this world, the security of this world. We are aching for something more than just what science or medicine can offer us or just what the government can offer us, what people can even offer us. We are aching, we are longing for something outside of this world that will fill this deep void within our hearts. And the great news is Jesus came to fill that void. And so, in Matthew, we see that Jesus, in chapter 19, has this encounter with a young man who fills this void, who fills this deep ache within his soul, within his heart. And let's read and see what happens. Matthew 19, verse 16. Now, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Now, let's stop right there because we're not told a whole lot about this guy who comes and has this conversation with Jesus. We're not told his name. We're not really told his background. We're not told actually what he does for a living besides the fact that he's a ruler. But within the Bible, three different gospel accounts record this moment with Jesus and this man. And we find out some interesting facts about him. Even though we don't know his name, we know that he was a ruler of some sort, so he was a man with authority and power. We know he was extremely wealthy. He had a lot of possessions, a lot of stuff. And we also know that he was young. Now, one other interesting thing is he seems to be somebody who practices the Jewish religion faithfully. He does good works as the law commands. So I want you to picture this guy. He's young, he's wealthy, he's powerful, he faithfully practices his religion. From an outside perspective, most people would think he's got everything going for him. I mean, he's got the life that a lot of people wanted. And yet even though he had everything that most people wanted, he's still missing something. See, it's interesting, this wealthy man, he approaches Jesus in a very odd way for this day and age. Mark's gospel gives us this little detail. It says, as Jesus started on his way, a man, the same man that we were reading about in Matthew 19, ran up to Jesus and fell on his knees before him. Now that's interesting because in this culture, in this day and age, dignified men did not run in public. It was considered disgraceful, it was undignified for a grown man to run in public. You did not do that, it did not happen. But not only does this man who's very powerful and very wealthy run to Jesus when no one else would have in that day, he also falls on his knees before Jesus. Either a sign of reverence or desperation, we're not sure, but he falls down before Jesus again, something that a man of his status would not do before a poor, itinerant Jewish rabbi who used to be a carpenter. So why does this guy run up to Jesus and fall down before him? Well, apparently something is gnawing at his heart. He knows something isn't right, and he feels like Jesus could fill that void that he is experiencing right now. And so he asked Jesus a question. Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Now, 
In the past, when you've studied this verse, you may have assumed what I assumed for years. That what this guy is basically asking is, how is it that I get into heaven when I die? That's what he's saying, you know, how do I get eternal life? So when I die, how do I know for sure that I'm going to make it into heaven? And I think that's part of what this young man wants to know. But it's bigger than that. That word get in the Greek is actually a word that means to hold in your hand, to possess. Some translations translate it like that. And it's in the present tense as of how do I possess it now? How do I get it, hold it now? How do I hold eternal life now? And you might think, well, what's he talking about? Well, this word eternal is an interesting Greek word as well that means without end, never to cease or decay. In other words, what this guy is saying is, how do I now have life that will never end? How do I now possess life that will never decay? What he's asking for is a life that is full, a life that is fulfilled, a life that is full of God's promises to where he knows that he can have joy and peace and satisfaction in the here and now that will last throughout all eternity. He wants to start to experience eternal life now. One uh, famous New Testament scholar, you may have heard of him before, N.T. Wright, he translates the question like this. He says, what good thing must I do if I'm to possess the life of the age to come? How do I possess it now? How do I start living for the life to come now? And in his commentary, N.T. Wright goes on to explain, eternal life in this context meant the age to come, the time when God would bring heaven and earth together When God rescues this sad old world and does what he has always promised, this young man has come wanting fulfillment. He wants life to be complete, complete in the present so it can be complete in the future. How do I live a full life now, a complete life now, Jesus, that will carry me throughout eternity? And that's a very biblical concept because actually Jesus says in John chapter 17, he says, you want to know what eternal life is? It's having a relationship with God the Father. It's knowing him. When we start to know God and live in relationship with him, that's when eternal life begins. And we receive its fullness when we die, but it starts now. And that's what this guy is saying. How do I start now to live this full, complete life? And he comes to Jesus and he asks this question Because I think he's been searching some time for satisfaction, for fulfillment. And he hasn't been able to find it. I mean, he's got all this stuff and all this power and prestige. But, you know, eventually the party comes to an end. Eventually the feelings fade. Eventually the money runs out. And he knows that even though he's got all this stuff, the happiness that this stuff brings him doesn't last. I once heard somebody say that the worst Feeling in the world is when you finally experience something you thought would be ultimate and it didn't fully satisfy. That's where this guy is. And I think this has brought him a lot of anxiety and stress. Maybe one of the reasons why he runs to Jesus. He's desperate in this moment. I want to know what I need to do in order to finally have this void deep within me filled. Because the way I'm living right now isn't really living. And so he comes to Jesus, and I think that's a good thing because Jesus is the one who has the answer for him. And why did he come to Jesus? Probably because he's been observing Jesus for some time, or at least he's heard a lot about Jesus, 
And remember what we said last week, Jesus lived a different kind of life. Jesus was never in a hurry, ever. Jesus lived with this peace that passes understanding. I mean, Jesus had this confident calmness in the midst of a chaotic and crazy world. And so Jesus obviously has something that this dude doesn't have. And he says, I want what you have. I want the life that you have. I want to be like you, Jesus. And haven't we all at some time or another wanted to be like somebody else? I mean, we have, haven't we? You guys may not know this about me. This is going to be a shock. I'm going to reveal something about me that, you know, your mouth may hit the floor. I know, your jaw may hit the floor. But I am a Kentucky Wildcat fan. Now, I know that shocks you. I know you haven't heard that before, but I am. And so I follow the Cats. In fact, I've got my UK Kentucky on today because we had a big game yesterday. We beat one of our in-conference rivals, the Tennessee Volunteers, and we didn't just beat them. We stomped them. It was an incredible game. I'm sorry if you're a Tennessee Volunteer fan, but go Cats. Okay, we had a great game, and it was awesome, but I digress. It has nothing to do with what I'm talking about, but I am a Kentucky fan, so I follow Kentucky sports, and one of the players on this year's basketball team is a guy named Damian Collins, and his fellow teammates call this guy who's a freshman a freak of nature. They lovingly call him a freak of nature because he is six foot nine, and he has a 42-inch vertical jump. I mean, that's impressive. I haven't been able to do that for like five years now. So, I mean, that's impressive that he can do that. I'm kidding, of course. But before the season started, they had a slam dunk contest. And so Damian Collins decided he was going to show off by jumping over top of one of his teammates who's also six foot nine, Oscar Sheboy, in order to dunk the ball. And look at what happened. Here he goes. I mean, this is just incredible. I mean, that's awesome. I mean, I could try that, but I would fail. And so he got a bunch of 10s, perfect score. Everybody was impressed. And those guys that are scoring him are former UK basketball players. They know how tough that is. And yet he pulled it off. And, of course, the crowd went wild. Now, here's the thing. My son, Alex, he's eight years old. He loves to play ball. He loves basketball, wants to play for Kentucky someday. And so he looks up to these guys. And he decided he's going to be able to jump like Collins can jump. And so we told him to stop trying to jump over his sister because that's what he was trying at first to practice. That wasn't working. And so he started to stack up pillows and jump over them. And the pillows have just been getting higher and higher and higher. And the other day, they got to a height that he had never reached before and he successfully jumped over them. And take a look at what happened. Now, I love his scream at the end because he impressed himself. He wasn't sure if he could do it, but it's like, wow, you know, I'm amazing myself in this moment. And he was so excited that he was able to do it. But why is it that he's been jumping over pillows? Because he wants to be like one of those Kentucky basketball players. And here's the thing. In life, there are, there are always those people, but man, I wish I could be more like them. And I think that's what's going on here in this text in Matthew chapter 19. This rich young ruler, though he has it all, realizes that Jesus has something he doesn't have, and he wants to be like Jesus. And I think that's a good thing, because Jesus has taught over and over again, I came to give life, life in all its fullness. So if you're looking for a full, complete, whole life, he's come to the right place. And here's the thing, I don't think that this guy was trying to like trick Jesus or fool Jesus or deceive Jesus or trap Jesus. You know, the teachers of the law and others, they try to trap Jesus. This guy's not trying to do that at all. 
Because the passage even says, we find out in the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus felt genuine love for this man. He loved this guy. He had compassion for him. Jesus liked this guy a lot. And even though he comes to Jesus with the right question, I'm not sure if he quite understands what he's asking. And that's why when he says, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Jesus responds in this way. Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Now, I don't think Jesus is being sarcastic here when he says, why do you ask me about what is good? I don't think he's being negative or he's criticizing this guy at all. I think what Jesus is doing is, do you realize what you're asking and who you're asking it to? Because only God is good. Men aren't good because men have been corrupted by sin. Only God knows what is good. Only God can define what is good. And so by asking me what is good, you are assuming either one of two things. Either I am God in the flesh and I can give you the right definition or I speak on behalf of God, like I'm a prophet from God. Either way, the answer that I'm getting ready to give you is from God. And are you ready to accept what I'm going to tell you? And so Jesus says... You know what God has said. He plays along with this game a little bit. He says, keep the commandments. You know the Old Testament law. Keep the commandments. Keep the commandments, instructions that God has already given you. And I love this guy's response. He says, which ones? As if he's saying, hey, what's the bare minimum here, you know? I mean, what do I need to do to pass the test? Remember in, you know, college or high school and the teacher would tell you something and somebody would say, is that going to be on the final? If that teacher said no, you didn't pay attention, did you? Because you just want to know what's going to be on the final. And I think that's what's going on here. This guy's like, which ones? And again, I don't think he's really being a jerk here. Remember, Jesus had compassion and love for this guy. I think this guy's just so exhausted chasing after satisfaction in in this world and not being able to find it, that he's like, I don't want to waste my time anymore. Just tell me what I need to do, Jesus. Tell me what I need to do to get eternal life. So he says, which ones? And look at how Jesus responds. Jesus says, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, And love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? See, this guy has the wrong perspective. He has a transactional perspective. He believes that you do good things to get a good life in return. And that's why he asked the question, what do I need to do to get eternal life? And a lot of people in Our world today still live with this perspective of life. What do I need to do to get a good life in return? And so Jesus says, you know all the commands. The guy's like, which one? So Jesus starts to list off different commands from the Old Testament. And I'm not sure if you noticed this, but all of the commands that Jesus listed are horizontal commands. What do I mean by that? Well, there are two types of commands in Scripture. There are horizontal commands, how we are to treat one another, other people, and then there are vertical commands, how we are to have a healthy relationship with God. And what Jesus does is he just gives this guy horizontal commands. He doesn't give him any vertical commands. Now, when you look at the Ten Commandments, for example, in the Old Testament, the first four of the Ten Commandments were vertical commands. How do you have a healthy relationship with God? Jesus doesn't mention any of those. Why? Because Jesus knows what this guy is missing. This guy has a transactional perspective of life, and so he's giving him commands that he's going to say, yeah, I've done all those. What else am I missing? Because Jesus is going to reveal here in just a second what this guy is missing. 
But I also want you to notice something else. It's not just that Jesus leaves out vertical commands. There's also one horizontal command that he leaves out. See, the guy's response is, all these I have kept. But there's one horizontal command from the Ten Commandments that Jesus doesn't mention that this guy probably would not have been able to say, I've kept it, if he really thought about it long enough. Does anybody know what the one horizontal commandment from the Ten Commandments uh, that Jesus left out, anybody know what that one was? Do not covet. Jesus doesn't mention that one. He leaves that one out because if he said that one, that guy may have had to second-guess himself and think, I don't know if I've kept that one fully or not. And so Jesus is revealing here by leaving out the vertical commandments what this guy is missing. And as a result, he's been coveting because he's been chasing after what everybody else has in order to find some type of satisfaction in life. See, he was busy doing good stuff, but he really didn't know the only one who is good. He was busy doing all this good stuff, but he really didn't know the one who was good. And because he didn't know the one who was good, it had led to him replacing the throne of his heart where God belonged with something else. And he had replaced the seat of his heart. He had, he had replaced God on the seat of his heart with stuff and possessions and wealth, thinking that those things could bring him satisfaction and contentment and joy. He had started to worship another God because his heart wasn't right with God. And this had led him to have a distraction, to have a weight that kept him from knowing God as he was supposed to know him. And so Jesus says, okay, you want to know what you still lack? If you want to, if you want to be perfect, if you want to be complete, have a complete whole life, Go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. See, now Jesus reveals what this guy is missing. And here's the thing. Jesus is not saying, if you go sell all your stuff, then you'll have eternal life. A lot of times when we read this passage, we focus on the fact that Jesus told this guy to sell all of his stuff. We think, wow, is Jesus asking all of us to do that? And he's not. He's not asking all of us to do that unless that's what's keeping us from God. Unless we've let that sit on the throne of our heart. Unless that is getting in the way of us having a spiritual life that we need to have with our Heavenly Father. So Jesus here isn't saying, if you go sell all your stuff, then you'll have eternal life. What he's saying is, in order to have eternal life, you need to follow me. But in order to follow me, you've got to get your stuff out of the way first. Because it's keeping you from me. And I wonder today, is there anything that's keeping you from what matters most? That's keeping you from having the relationship with God that you need to have? And so this man walks away sad, sorrowful, because he's putting his trust in his stuff rather than in Jesus. And when this guy walks away sad, look at the disciples' response. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, 
Who then can be saved? See, the disciples are looking at this dude and they're thinking, he's a good guy. He's well-respected. He's got money. He's got power. I mean, he's young. And not only that, he is actually trying to keep God's law and he treats people well. I mean, he's a good dude. He's better than the average Joe. If that guy can't get in, then who can? And look at how Jesus responds. Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Now, I just want you to know, our hope, our peace, our contentment, our comfort, our joy in life, all hangs on those words right there. Because what Jesus here is saying is, you're right, even that guy, can't earn his way to eternal life. Nobody can. It's impossible because men have sinned. The human race have sinned. And so none of us can earn our way to God. But what's impossible with men is possible when you follow me. When you do life with me, when you do life my way, God will give you what you could not achieve on your own. That's why I love how Jesus uses the language at the end of this passage that the one who follows him will inherit eternal life. Not earn it, not achieve it, not accomplish it. Inherit eternal life because when you inherit something, what does that mean? It means you haven't worked for it. It's given to you because of who you are, because of your status as a child of God. And so what Jesus here is trying to do is he's trying to change their perspective on life. See, they're living right now with this transactional perspective. You do good things to get a good life in return. And what Jesus is trying to do is change their perspective to a relational perspective where you're given something not because of what you've done, but because of who you know, because of the one that you know. Our God in heaven who loves us, created us, designed us, and has a purpose for us. Guys, the world's greatest need isn't more legislation. The world's greatest need isn't more education. The world's greatest need isn't better science or medicine. The world's greatest need isn't putting the right politician in office. The world's greatest need is Jesus, Jesus period. And here's the thing, that void that you fill in your heart, more money isn't going to fill it. More stuff isn't going to fill it. More social media followers isn't going to fill it. More hashtags isn't going to fill it. That void that's in your heart, more relationships alone in this life, it's not going to fill it. The only thing that's going to fill that void deep within your heart is Jesus because Jesus is the great ache of our heart. The great ache of your heart and my heart is for Jesus. And this guy in our passage, he hadn't realized that yet. Jesus says, follow me. He says, you want real life, full life, complete life, eternal life? That's what you got to do. Follow me. I'm the only one that can give you that life. And yet the man doesn't. The passage says he walks away sad because he put his trust in his stuff. See, 
what I have discovered is that our worries are often rooted in misplaced trust. We're trusting in the wrong things, the wrong people. And because we're not ultimately trusting in God, we worry and we have all this anxiety and stress and fear that we don't have to have. And it's all due to misplaced trust. And the Bible says, an anxious heart weighs a man down. See, this guy in our passage, he was weighed down, but he couldn't let go of what was making him anxious. And my question to you today is, What's hiding beneath the surface that's keeping you from coming up for air? Because Jesus wants you to come up for air, but is there anything that's weighing you down, anything that's holding you back, that's keeping you from experiencing the life that Jesus wants you to live? Because the book of Hebrews says this, it says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. The Bible tells us to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Did you catch what it says here? It's not just sin that entangles us. Now sin can weigh us down, sin can distract us, sin can and does keep us from living the life that God wants us to live. But notice what the author of Hebrews says. Throw off everything that hinders and the sin. Sometimes the things that hinder us from God are good things. Good things that God has blessed us with. But we've allowed for those things to sit on the throne of our heart in place of God. And they're a cheap, counterfeit God that simply keeps us from the life that God wants us to live. What is it that you need to let go of? What is it that you need to be released from, set free from? So that you can come up for air. Well, if that's you right now and you feel like you're way down and stressed out and you need to come up for air... Let me give you two quick pieces of of advice. So the first is this. Acknowledge that you need help. Before you can receive help, you have to acknowledge that you need it. Own the situation you're in. Stop denying it. Stop pretending like it's not there. Own the situation that you're in and acknowledge that you need help, whatever help that is. And then once you acknowledge that you need help, accept the help you need. See, that's where the rich young ruler fell short. He knew he needed something. He knew he needed help, so he came to Jesus. But once Jesus offered him help, he went in the opposite direction of Jesus. And sadly, this is where a lot of other people fall short. They know something isn't right, but then once Jesus tells them what they need to do, they walk away from him and they continue to live with that weight every single day. See, this guy's story doesn't end well. But it didn't have to end that way. If he just would have accepted the help he needed, this could have been the best day of his life. But instead, it ended up being one of the worst days of his life. See, if you truly want to live a full life, the key isn't trying to figure out life on your own or earn it. If you want to live a full life, you've got to hang on to Jesus. He's the only way to live a full life. And I grew up in churches where sometimes sometimes it was the expectation that if you were a spiritually mature person, that you wouldn't need help. And nothing could be further from the truth. 
Spiritually mature people are those who know they can't do it on their own and they cling to Jesus. This is Sanctity of Life Week. You heard that announced a little bit earlier. And every time I think about Sanctity of Life Week and Sanctity of Life Sunday, I think about a story, a true story that I heard years ago. You may have heard this as well. There's a little boy named Samuel Alexander Armas. His mom was 21 weeks pregnant with him. He was still in the womb. And the doctors discovered that he had spina bifida, which meant that his spine was growing outside of his skin. And the doctor said that the only way that he could survive is if they operated on him while he was still in the womb. So his parents went to Vanderbilt University where they had done some experimental surgeries like this. And a doctor by the name of Dr. Bruner operated on him. What's interesting is, is as Dr. Bruner was finishing up the operation, and it went, it was very successful. As he was finishing the operation, apparently little Samuel's hand popped out. And when it popped out, Dr. Bruner quickly went over to grab the hand to place it back in where it needed to be. And when he went to reach for little Samuel's hand, little Samuel grabbed on to the doctor's finger. And it shocked Dr. Bruner because Samuel was supposed to be sedated in that moment. But he grabbed on to his finger and he held it real tight. And Dr. Bruner tried to get little Samuel to release his finger, but he just held on as tight as he could. There was a photographer in the room that actually took a picture of this moment. And in just a second, I'm going to show this on the screen. And if you have a weak stomach or something like this bothers you, you may want to look away just for a second. There's nothing that bad, but I just want to issue that warning before I put it up there. But I want to show it to you because I think our culture needs to see images like this. And here it is. You can see the little hand, Samuel's little hand, hanging on to the finger of Dr. Bruner. You can take that down. When I see that, I think about our lives. See, to live a full life means to cling to the hand of the one who holds your life in his hands. That's what it means to live a full life. It's not trying to get as much stuff as you can, as much glory and prestige and honor as you can, It's not about doing what everybody else is doing and competing with everybody else. You'll never live a full life that way. It's clinging to the one who holds your life in his hands. And when you cling to him, he'll lift you up so that you can breathe the air of heaven. David writes these words in the book of Psalms. He, speaking of the Lord, reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of the deep waters. Let's pray. Father, as we wrap up here today, I just pray that we will be like those who reach up to you and cling to you. Because when we do, as David said in that psalm, you will pull us out of the deep. You will pull us up so that we can breathe the air of heaven, so that we can catch our breath. And I know that our culture today is more stressed out and anxious and fearful than ever. And I just pray that we as a church will seek you because the only way to live a full life is to do life with your son. He's the answer 
to everything that we are dealing with today. And I just pray that we seek him today. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.